So I'm the old guy that gets to talk tonight, and I honestly love it. I love being older. There's great stuff in front of you, but this is a young crowd. I'm looking around for somebody who might be my age, and I, I'm trying to thank you. Anybody else in their 60s? Good. Okay, so we have some support, and uh, I, need all, I need everything I can get from you. My wife's not here tonight. She's in eastern Canada over in Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia. She was born in Moncton, New Brunswick, and it's her first time back to where she was born, left as a little kid and moved. We met in central Canada. I dated her when I was 15 years old. She dropped me twice in three months. And then it came back four years later when we were in college and uh, dated for four years and got married. And Ruth's not here tonight. She's a therapist. She's a counselor. Some of you know her and love her. And I love her a ton and miss her tonight. She would love to be here with you, but she's checking out gravestones of great-great-grandparents and all that kind of stuff out there. So she's having a good time checking out dead people. Um, I just realized as I was preparing this talk that I became a Christian when that song was on in 1969. um, I became a Christian, and then I just thought as I was preparing this talk, it's 2019, so I calculated, and in June, this is the 50th anniversary of me making a commitment to follow Jesus Christ. And so... John Mark asked me to speak on the second half of life, and the timing is, like, amazing for me. Thank you. Psalm 71, 18 and 19 says, Now that I am old, and I don't have an afro, it says, Now that I am old and my hair is gray, don't leave me, God. I must tell the next generation about your power and greatness. Isn't that a great verse? Now that I am old and my hair is gray, don't leave me, God, because I want to tell people. I want to tell the next generation about your power and greatness. So I'm really happy to be able to do that tonight. I had an accident in the summer of 1971. Um, So 69, I came to Christ. 71 in June, I'm uh, riding my 10-speed bicycle down the main street of the city. Traffic flying down in both directions. I come to an intersection where a guy can come across to a gas station, a hotel, or a bar. And I've got my head down on my handlebars of a 10-speed bike. And uh, he looks for vehicles and doesn't see any and steps on the gas. And I lift my head up and look over. And all of a sudden, he just drives right into me. And so I brought this hourglass this evening. This sits in my office. I will just leave it up here tonight. Um, this sits in my office to remind me um, that I'm, I'm really living as somebody that should have, should have not made it past age 17. Um, after I got knocked out, just momentarily, I came to under the car, and um, I, I thought I was going to die. And I, I shouldn't be here. You just don't get run over by a car. And I wound up in the hospital with a broken pelvis in several spots and broken jaw, teeth knocked out. I thought half of my head had been pushed in when I got to the hospital and, and, and asked the nurses, is my head been pushed in on the side? Well, if it was, I wouldn't be alive. But I just felt like everything, I was wearing cutoffs and a T-shirt, and it was just a mess. And I was in the hospital for a month recovering. Um, and so as this sand drops through, I'm just trying to help us all understand that there's no guarantees how long we're going to live. But um, we just need to be aware of that. And so I use this as a reminder from time to time. And saints through the ages have said, you'll make more of your life each day if you ponder the fact that you're going to die someday. That brings you into reality now and says, I need to live intentionally. And, and with deeper uh, awareness of why each day is a privilege. 
and why I want to get the most out of it and give the most to others from it and be aware of God each experience that I have throughout the day. So let's just be aware of time today and our future. It could have been 17 for me. I'm just simply here because God was saying, stick around, talk to people about my goodness to you. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is just sort of where I'd like you to turn if you have a Bible. And uh, it's Ecclesiastes was written to wake us up to the fact that if you live for the first half of life, you will hit a dead end. The first half of life is awesome. John Mark spoke about it a few weeks ago, and he knew I'd be, uh, he was setting me up for the second half of life, but a few weeks ago, he plowed deeply into the, the opportunities and the dangers of life in the first half. In the second half of life, the writer of Ecclesiastes has plowed deeply, and he simply says, verse 1 of chapter 12, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach you, when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. He basically was warning us that he tried all the things that you could try over and over again, but pleasure and wealth and success, working hard, being being recognized, being important, being valued, being needed. And he added all of that into those chapters and said, you know what? You need to recognize your creator in the days of your youth so that your life will be in full force as you move into the second half of life. And so he says in verse 6, after he's given some incredible metaphors or, or, or windows through which you can see old age, if you choose to read it later on tonight, just ponder what he's trying to tell you in the verses in between. But verse 6, he says, Remember him before the silver cord is severed, or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring, or the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the, to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. He's simply calling us not to get caught up, but to remember from, from our youth through to our old age that God is really the center of the two halves of life. So let's talk about spirituality and the two halves of life. I'd like you to look at a diagram that really highlights this for us. and um, It comes from Richard Rohr out of a book that was delivered way back when. And actually, um, he's, he's written a lot of good stuff, but some stuff that I've read and just, this book was just so average for me, but there was, there was a diagram in it. And it was only just this one page that I took from the book and I've used it for about the last 20 years, 15 years to talk to people about the stages of life. So on the front half, we have an up and to the right experience and, and um, we'll call this the identity journey. This is the time of the first half of life when you need to build a container you need to get an education. You need to pursue the opportunities that open up to you in terms of where you fit, where you're needed, where you're wanted. And you have to decide in those first 20 to 30 years of life and maybe even through to 40, who am I? What am I doing? Where do I fit? How do I get off to a good start in my 20s and my 30s? Or if you're in your teens here tonight, choosing where I go to college and what I do with all of that. That's first half identity stuff. That's building the container. John Mark highlighted the importance of this, but he highlighted the dangers as well. I want to highlight the opportunities and dangers of the second half of life because you see it says sooner or later you move into a crisis of limitations and then things require you to move into the wisdom journey and we're going to explore that tonight. But Bonnie Ware, a, a hospice nurse in Australia, has written a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. Top five regrets of the dying. And I just want to give those to you on the screen tonight. 
There's a whole book about him, and it's worth reading. It's not a, not a follower of Christ, but she lays down some things that I could preach through these five points. I'll just give you the key ones. She said, here are the five. The top one, she said, was as I worked with people in hospice who were dying, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not to the life others expected of me. It's so easy to live our lives based on what our parents expect, based on what people expect, and where we get pushed and pulled. And finally, we live a whole life. And many people said to her at the top of their list was, I I haven't lived the life I wanted to live. Secondly, she said, every man that she stood with and cared for and uh, stood beside as they died said somewhere along the way, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Such a critical clue to what's important in life. Another thing that was said is number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. And number four, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. I've been told that if you die and you have five close friends still in your life, you're a very fortunate person. Most people have lost maybe all of their close friends and there's no one in their life anymore that they consider a close friend in old age. And the last one she said is, I wish I had let myself be happier. Such an important thing to think about that in my life I missed things because of one of these five reasons. I didn't, the dying person is basically saying, I didn't see this coming. And I wouldn't have wanted it to end this way. I'd like to have lived a different life. So if you're on the front half today, if you're in the first part of the journey on the first half, you want to listen up for second half wisdom because it's easy to go into the second half and not have a game plan. And that's what people tell us. Carl Jung, the Swiss psychologist who died in the 60s, did a lot of work on the stages of life. And he says this about the second half, that there's no plan. We have a great plan for first half of life. There's no plan for second half of life given to us by our culture. Wholly unprepared. We embark upon the second half of life. We're still. We take this step with the assumption that our truths and ideals will serve us as hitherto. But we cannot live the afternoon of life according to the program of life's morning. He had life fixed out in a day. For what was great in the morning will be little in the evening. And what in the morning was true in your 20s or your 30s, what in the morning was true will at evening become a lie. In that the truth about how we ought to live the first half of life doesn't work in the second half of life. Ask people who are in the second half. Many of them, as they move through and get into it, they start to say, what was working for me is no longer working. My life has changed somehow, some way, in mysterious ways. I need to live differently in the second half of my life. And then Gail Sheehy, in her book, New Passages, talks about no plan for the second half of life. She says, given Western society's revulsion against middle age, nobody wants to get old. The map of the youth culture leads us to the edge of the known world, whereupon it simply drops off. We have been as ignorant about what lies on the other side as we are, as were Columbus and the early explorers of the new world. Think of the Super Bowl for a minute and the two halves. The talk you would get at the beginning of the game. The, team, the jerseys are all clean. Everything is taped up and prepared. And the coach is giving that five-minute talk to the team before they go out for the Super Bowl. But now it's halftime. 
What kind of talk is he going to give the team at halftime? It will not be the first half talk. Now we're down 14 points. Now two key players are injured. We've lost one of our receivers and a key blocker on the front line. Now we have to come at this with a different strategy. The weather's changed. Change your foot gear. It's raining. It's more slippery. It's windier. We're going to be kicking into the wind. Let's get this down. Let's get this right. The second half talk comes into play. Well, spirituality and the two halves of life is what I want to talk about. And I'd like to give us a second half talk tonight. The crisis of limitations. Sooner or later, life serves us up experiences that we can't manage. And sometimes that happens way early in life. The death of of a loved one that's very important to us when we're young can start this off long before midlife. Joseph was sold into slavery and had to make some decisions about brokenness and pain early on in life. Sooner or later, life, we hit the wall and we come to that middle spot. We've been able to hold things together, but usually in the middle, people say, my my shock absorbers aren't holding it quite like they used to. I'm not bouncing back. You feel it physically first. If you're past age 40 and you're approaching 50 and your body's not telling you that you're getting old, that something's changed, you're living on some borrowed time. If you're playing basketball with the young crowd and they're not running past you, you're actually playing with them still. You're, you're living on borrowed time. You, Your body is doing something for you that's not normal because as soon as you go past 40, I I used to not wear glasses at 40 when I was preaching. And I said, man, I've got great eyesight. I'm never going to need glasses ever. I don't think I'll ever need glasses. And then then my eyesight started to go. And that's why tonight I'm wearing glasses and working off of 16 font print. I faked it for a while and just got a large print Bible. But by age 45, I had to get glasses and I realized, no, you can't escape it. It's your body. It's about relationships. It's a financial crisis. It's a spiritual crisis. As you go into the second half of life, I found myself saying, I thought I'd be farther down the road spiritually than I am now. I thought things would be different. I'm a bit disillusioned spiritually at the halfway point. There can be career crises. I work with pastors and leaders who hit career crises sometimes in the, in the midpoint of life and towards the second half, and they throw you for a loop, as many of you have experienced in the business world. It goes on and on. We do need a game plan as we encounter these limits. We will feel lost. We will sometimes feel disillusioned, and sometimes it's, it's like there's a dead end, and we don't know how to... I, I felt like I hit a dead end at 50 in ministry. And I'll refer to that a number of times tonight. We encounter a situation we can't fix, we can't control, we can't even understand. Sooner or later, we will encounter experiences that come into our lives. We say, I don't have answers for this. This is where our spiritual formation will either collapse or expand. As we move through this stage, there's three turns in the road. You see it right there on the screen as you look at midlife. First of all, some people become the old fool. And the old fool is this. If you are uniquely gifted, if you are a charismatic, dynamic personality that people are drawn to, and they're always pulling on you and asking you, if you're uniquely gifted or if you're wealthy, you have a way to escape pain. You have a way to dodge it. And you do, and you turn the back half of your life into a continued, not just identity journey, but a heroic journey. 
Richard Rohr says, success has nothing to teach you after age 30. It doesn't. I know that. If your identity is not formed and you need more success after 30 to become aware of who you are and that you're a valued person by God and others, if you still need more success at 50 and then 60 and 70, if you're driven by the need for success and are somehow able to dodge the lessons that pain teaches, then you're starting to fall into the old fool category. Matthew 19, 23 tells us about this person and says, it's really hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God because they dodge the pain of life and the lessons it was meant to teach. You know wealthy people do this. I was just down in Palm Springs, Palm Springs on, the, on the main street downtown there and I saw so much plastic surgery Seriously, I just go into restaurants and places and I'd look at people. I'd just look around for plastic surgery. I'd look at for 70 to 80-year-old people who just didn't look right. <laughs> they shouldn't have done it. We see them on TV from time to time and you just look at the, where their face is and you go, you shouldn't have done it. Just give it up and become old. <laughs> you look like an old fool. You dress like an old fool. You drive a car that looks like an old fool. You're trying to escape the reality of getting old. Then next we move, and if you don't keep ascending and play the game of the old fool and play the heroic journey out instead of an identity journey and make a proper turn, then at that spot, what are you doing with the pain of life? It would be easy to become an embittered fool. Setbacks lead to resentment. And people at this stage of life, at midlife, often turn into people who are blaming others for the fact that life didn't turn out the way they wanted it to. This is Job's wife in Job chapter 2, 7 to 9. It just says about her, oh, the whole issue goes like this. Satan afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, listen to this. Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. She was so embittered at everyone and at everything. She just said, curse God and die. Thankfully, Job didn't. But we all know people. And there was a time in my life in ministry where a church was not going the way I had hoped it would. And there was lots of stuff happening in my life that was pushing me sideways. And I realized it feels good to be mad at people. I never showed it on the outside. I stuffed it inside. But it feels good to be mad at people. And some of us are sitting here tonight and saying, and it feels good to get mad at the church. And some of us are here tonight and saying, it it feels good sometimes to be mad at the world. And it can even go so far as to say, I am mad at God. I'm embittered. This didn't go the way I wanted it to go. Their wounds, you see, never become sacred wounds because the pain never gets turned over into something that God reveals as transformative. Pain is always meant to be transformative. It wasn't meant to just leave you frustrated and embittered. It's so clearly given to us in the Bible that it's meant to transform us. And if you fight against pain, you lose your way and you become embittered. You become the embittered fool. I had a friend whose name is Tim. He told me this story. He said, Morris, I was at Cannon Beach. I was swimming by Haystack Rock. All of a sudden, I got caught in a riptide, and I was struggling to get in and couldn't get in. And he said, 
He did what you're supposed to do. He said, I just relaxed and I went out. And he said, finally, I came to a place where I could felt, I feel like the tide was coming in and the riptide had, had left. And he said, literally, Morris, I went out and around Haystack Rock and came in on the other side. You've got to make a decision not to keep fighting the pain and finally give in to what God is doing and say, what are you trying to show me through this? I think one of the most critical lessons that John Mark has been trying to get across in this series is surrender is the key. Surrender is the key to everything in the Christian journey. God invites us to be formed, and that sometimes means declaring our faith in the darkness. At the end of Habakkuk, read it for yourself. Though the fig tree doesn't blossom, and there's no fruit on the vine, though everything in our city and our nation gets destroyed by the Babylonians who are coming in, he declares his faith in the darkness. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I am not going to become an embittered person despite the fact that everything is going to hell in a handbasket for us. Or we can finally come to the place where we make the move down and we become what's called the holy fool. And at first you'll say, that seems kind of weird. But the Bible talks about, Paul talks about, I'd be a holy fool for Christ. And in another place he says, the wisdom of God is wiser than, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. It's just stunning how we're called to live into the wisdom that God gives, which is so counterintuitive to the rest of the world. So Jesus leaves us on a descent into wisdom and a transformative life. I've, I've actually shown this diagram to people and somebody has come back to me and redrew it and says, you know, you can do, you could use that illustration, but the line can go up. And I just, I just go, <laughs> I don't want to use it that way. Because Jesus says it clearly, it is dissent. To find your life, you must lose it. To live your life, you must learn to die. And Jesus leads us on dissent. And in so doing, we find our true self. Mark Moose says it this way. He talks about the wisdom journey. The second half of life ought to be about the deepening of our spiritual natures. It should not be about acquisition but about relinquishment, not about acting, but accepting, not about mastery, but mystery. The first half of life is about the acquisition. It's about, accept, uh, about acting and delivering. It's about mastery, but the second half of life is about relinquishment, and that involves mystery, and there's something beautiful about that. I like being 65. I didn't think I would. But as I'm moving into this season of life, I'm seeing things that I really want. So I want to introduce you to how we surrender and how we play out the second half of life. I want to highlight four themes about second half living tonight. A game plan for the second half. First of all, I want to talk about a time to forgive yourself. As we approach second half, and I would just say to the young men and women here, get ready to do this. And to the older who sit into the second half of life, practice this. Forgive yourself for what wasn't right in the first half of life. For the mistakes you made. Gail Sheehy in that book, New Passages, says it this way. You have to forgive the things that happened in the first half of your life. 
the people who failed you and the ways you failed yourself in order to go on to the second half. You can't go into the second half without realizing that there's stuff that wasn't right in the first half. It couldn't be. We live in a broken world. And so we practice, as we move into the second half, we practice the spirituality of imperfection. We lean into grace rather than performance. And we take the words that were said over Jesus as he moved into his ministry. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. And we, say, we let God say it to us as we move into the second half of life. And we hear him say, despite the fact that things got messed up, that we made mistakes in the first half. There's a, a Jesuit saint that I've read who just says this, it's not an invitation to sin. So listen to the wisdom behind what he's saying. He says, celebrate your sin or accept your sin or see the goodness of your sin for your sins are the carriers of grace. It's counterintuitive to realize that God doesn't want us to sin, but knowing we will, he makes that to be the place where our sins become the place where God carries and renews and revitalizes us in our brokenness. In the broken world, God answers our sinfulness by offering grace. So there are broken pieces from the first half of life and you cannot amputate them and just throw them away. You take them with you as broken pieces. Some stained glass windows or some beautiful art have been done with the broken shards of glass. And people have turned that into amazing art. And your life becomes a display of the beauty of brokenness. J.I. Packer talks about why we can believe in God's love despite the fact that we are broken people. And here it is. There is tremendous relief in knowing that God's love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. Of prior knowledge of the worst about me. So that no discovery by me about myself and my brokenness now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself and quenched his determination to bless me in my brokenness. There are so many of us that believe God has forgiven us, but we still carry so much shame about what we did on the front half or maybe what we've done on the back half. Growing up in Canada, I played a lot of hockey. I played hockey right through college. And I had a skate one day come right into, right into my wrist and just lay it open right there where all the blood comes out. And I can see that scar right now. But you would, you would never notice it or talk to me about it, but it's a reminder to me. I remember it very clearly. And some of us tonight can remember very clearly where we went wrong in life. And while you may feel like God has forgiven you, you still carry so much shame. You know what? God gives forgiveness, the grace of forgiveness, which deals with our guilt. But God gives acceptance and love, which deals with shame. You need to know you're accepted. So stop shaming yourself for your first half mistakes and forgive yourself. The second truth that we need to lean into is that we need to discover our true self. By the time we move into the second half of life, we've, we should have been able to pick up the hints as to where our false self has been managing our lives. As soon as we were born, the strategy is this. We are born into a broken world, 
And so we start to develop a strategy as soon as we become conscious and are able to manage our life in any way. We develop a control and protect strategy to survive the broken world that we were born into. Each one of us here has a control and protect strategy that was not given by God, but was developed by our own selves in the broken world to survive and protect and manage our life in brokenness. And that strategy is directly linked to the Enneagram. If you study the Enneagram number and find yourself, I'm a two on the Enneagram, and I can stand over here and tell you how I used my two space in the Enneagram, which led me to a complete dead end of brokenness because I was trying to manage my life by my own strategy in a broken world where God says, I need you to wake up to that strategy. You're in the second half of life, Morris. Come on, we can do better. We can live into a true self. Toxic behavior is all around the false self. I came down from Canada, obviously, as a Canadian and an American, I'm a dual citizen, which came down from the, uh, the border out of Vancouver, Peace Arch, and as I was crossing with two friends, we'd gone, a, gone across to visit in Canada. As I was coming across the border with my two buddies, we stopped and the, the border patrol agent um, stops us and asks us the basic questions. And then and I'm expecting them, but then he asks a question that I don't expect at all. He said, do you guys have something radioactive in your vehicle? That is not a good question to get asked at the border. If you've ever been asked that question, come and talk to me. I suspect you haven't. We're sitting in, the, in, a, in a rental car going, there's something radioactive in here? And what does that mean? Radioactivity in cars going across the border means you're not going to be going across the border. You're going to go into a little room and have a long conversation with somebody. And so he said to me, he says, because my radioactive detector, which looks like an iPhone, he says, is vibrating right now. And Scott and Matt Moore sat in the car trying to figure out what is going on. Then he finally says, has any of you had some kind of a medical test done recently in your life? And I, I go back and I go, yeah, yeah, I have. I have struggled with lots of headaches and I had a brain scan done recently. Some of you know about SPECT and how they can do that. The way they do that is they inject you with radio, radioactive isotopes that goes through your brain. And then they take the image of your brain, which I literally could put up on the screen for you tonight and show you my brain and the hot spots and what they, what they learned about me. But there was radioactivity in me. And I want to tell you, in terms of your true self and your false self, there's radioactivity that you have learned to adopt. And it is going to go off like a bomb in the second half of your life. Ecclesiastes is just inviting us, don't let that happen. Don't go there. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24 talks about this running up against the radioactivity and choosing not to be on the old self side. It says in verse 15 of, of chapter 4, it says, put off your old self, the toxic self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, some of you say, I'm trying to figure out where my false self lies. I've got, there are ways you can figure that out. Take the Enneagram and, me- and wrestle with it till it comes clear for you. It-, it takes some people a year and a half or two years to see how it's at work, what number you are and how you operate to control. Another place you can go is Psalm 139 says this, search me, O God, test my heart. 
and look for any anxious place in me. Anxiety is toxic, and it's your strategy to control, and that's why you're anxious. Look for all of your anxieties. David says, show me my anxiety, Lord, and help me to deal with that. There's another way to find your false self. Ask people who are close to you this question. What's it like for you to be in relationship with me? I asked my son that question before he moved to New York. Luke, who worked with Stumptown Coffee and in his mid-20s was leaving for New York. And we went to Orcas Island, just the two of us, because I thought, "Mm, this is probably my last time to hang out with my son. And things hadn't been going the way I had wanted them to. And I just, we woke up in the morning and I just said to him, Luke, would you... Would you be honest with me and talk to me about what it was like to grow up in our home? And I said, I don't have any agenda. And he says, oh, I think you do. (laughs) I said, actually, I was so broken at that point in my life regarding so many things. I said, no, I don't have an agenda. And Luke gave me a critical piece of truth about what it was like to grow up in our home that had hurt him. And I looked at him and I said, would you please forgive me for that? I feel it in my heart to this day and I can see how I did it when he put his finger on it. I told people to use this question and this guy said, when I heard you say that, Morris, I thought it would be a good date night question with my wife, so... I discovered that it's not at the next retreat. He he told all the people that were at the next retreat, he says, that's not a date night question. You don't need to go there on date nights. But you do need to go there and ask your close friends and family members or spouse if you're married, what's it like for you to be in relationship with me? Let's go to the third one. It's a time to focus on generativity. The wisdom journey is God's invitation for you to become aware of the next generation. Eric Erickson introduced us to eight stages, and John Mark talked about him earlier on in the series. And the seventh stage, and there's only one more after it, and it's really late in life, but the seventh stage for us who are in our 50s and our 60s, as we move into the second half of life, is generativity. And generativity is simply this. We transcend our personal interests to provide care for the next generation. We become more concerned about our children and our grandchildren and the next generation of young people who are growing up as we know that time is passing and we have less, but they have more. And so we get excited about the next generation and pull them forward in love and stay engaged with them. Do you know what? The next generation does not want to talk to people who are old fools or embittered fools. But they do want to talk to older people who've been on the wisdom journey and have become holy fools for Christ. They want to, I want to be with people like that. I'm always looking for people like who are a decade older than me and watching and looking at them. And I remember asking a guy that I so respected, I said, what do I need to know about the next decade of my life? And he gave me an incredible piece of wisdom that I am actually practicing in my 60s. He was 70 and he'd overworked himself in his 60s and he just looked at me at that conference and he said to me, do less so that you'll be able to do more. He basically was saying, I overdid it in my 60s and now I'm paying for it in my 70s. Learn to slow down. 
It was a wake-up piece for me as I was a decade behind, and we have wisdom to offer the next generation who's coming up behind us. When I hit my crisis of limitations in the church that I was pastoring in Seattle, and I was really at the end of it, I finally wound up in a psychiatrist's office, and the first words that came out of my mouth with Ruth sitting beside me to the psychiatrist were, were, were these words. I didn't know the guy from Adam, and tears are streaming down my face, and I said, I have totally and completely lost my way. And and the fact of the matter is I was still living in the first half of life trying to be golden boy. I was actually told by someone, you're golden. Everything you do turns to gold. And you know what I said back then in my 40s when somebody told me that? You're right. (laughs) I am. That's a dangerous place to go. The higher you go on the heroic journey on that front end, the harder the fall. And I fell severely as I approached 50 But as I went to the counselor with my crisis of limitations, he drew a circle on a whiteboard in his office, a circle just like this, and he wrote control in the center of it. And he said, Morris, what can you really control? And I actually started thinking that through and thinking I'd come up with some things that I can control. Go ahead and do this when you go home tonight. You can't control your health. You can't control an accident. You can't control a marriage or a love relationship that you might want. You can't control your friends. I have friends who have turned against me or left me behind. You can't control your finances and ensure that there'll be enough there someday. You can't control your health. You have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. You can't control your children. Those of you who are getting married and having younger children, get ready for a you-can't-control experience. It's coming in a big way. So he drew the circle and I realized the lines went into the center. And I realized, oh man, I don't have a circle of control. It just got smaller and smaller. And then he looked at me and he said, but Morris, there's something you need to realize. You're trying to live in control and it's creating all this anxiety. But turn it around and go to the place of influence. You can have a great circle of influence. Your influence on people can continue as you go through the years, but it won't work well out of a control place. It works out of a place of love, of generativity, where you finally aren't focused on yourself and your anxiety isn't about you and how it's going. Your concern is for the next generation to empower them and to give them the wisdom and the discernment that they're asking for and not to give it until they ask. Or you're the old fool telling them how to run their lives before they want you to tell them that. And nobody needs that. So give up your control and realize your influence. I am at the stage of life where if I put a picture of my family up there, there's four grandchildren. And I have two sons and two daughters-in-law who become daughters to me because I had two boys and grew up in a family with four boys. So I knew we needed some women in our lives. And the two married in and now I have a granddaughter and three grandsons. And all I can say is I want to I live well. I want the sand passing through at this stage of life to not be about me anymore. But to give my life away, to die to the things that I think are so important and to make sure that I'm not living like an old fool concerned about me or an embittered fool, but I've shifted the emphasis to other people to re-enter the world by reaching back. The last piece of advice I give you tonight 
is this. It's a time to shift from doing to being. And John Mark has talked about this, but please understand what we're saying. It's actually a little bit, to, a little bit difficult to discern the difference between doing and being. But Gordon MacDonald talks about outer space and inner space spiritually. And he says in the front half of life, you tend to live in outer space. What do I need to do to get ahead? What do I need? I need to build a container. How are people reacting to me? That's all very important to analyze, to position yourself in life. That is the first half of life. It's necessary. But in the second half of life, we don't need to build a container anymore. We need to shift to the interior space, to the contents of the container. Why did God give me this education? Why did God give me this job? Why did God give me this child? Why did God give me this city to live in? Why am I here? Why, why am I in this world? It's time for us to leave the, the busy, clamoring, noisy world and move into a contemplative, non-anxious place by just learning to sit and paying attention to what's going on inside. And when you start practicing solitude, as you've been encouraged to practice in the series that you keep moving through in the practices here at Bridgetown, as you're encouraged to practice solitude, you'll discover this, that when you move out of the rat race on the outside, you'll discover there's a rat race going on on the inside, that you don't know how to sit with yourself. And there's a very important lesson that we need to learn about interior space. And it's this, the older you get, the more you have space by yourself. Some of you are saying, I can't wait. But others of us have begun to discover that there's quite a bit of space. And we don't know how to deal with loneliness. It's important that we know that loneliness doesn't need to be part of the space that we have in our life, in the the empty spaces that we get to fill alone. We need to turn loneliness into learning how to be alone. Jesus went, it says, to lonely places in Luke and prayed. But he wasn't lonely. He was connecting to the Father. And so we need to develop an interior life, an interior space where we can be alone and know who we're with and have meaningful, productive experiences, counterintuitive experiences that seem so meaningful. Now that we've gotten off the treadmill of the rat race on the outside, we finally clean it up on the inside and we realize my life is more than what I do. I exist for God. I exist to know him and to love him and to walk with him. Solitude is that temporary engagement from the world so that we can discover who we truly are and why we're really here. And out of that space, we can come back and serve the world with much more influence and love than we can if we're on some kind of anxious, compulsive journey in the second half. We need to stare down our fictionalized self that we built to stare down that fictionalized self Because we need to realize that happiness is not contingent on someone or something. Jesus knew the fullness of his life was dependent on his relationship with the Father. And that's where his happiness and his joy came from. That's why he was who he was. So in conclusion, there's the four. A time to forgive yourself. A time to discover your true self. A time to focus on generativity. And a time to shift from doing to being. My dad died at age 91. I remember him saying the words when I went in with my brother and he was being told that he had bone cancer and that it was serious and he was very near the end. 
I went in with the doctor and my brother and I heard my dad say these words. So this is how it ends. Someday, we're all going to say those words. All of the sand will drop through and as we're approaching the last few little flakes of sand, someone will tell us that we're really close to the edge and we will say the words, so this is how it ends. But the last two things my dad said will never leave me. My mom's name was Verna. And the second second last thing my dad said was, Verna, dear Verna, how I have loved you. And the last thing my dad said before he died was this, I made a good decision to follow Jesus. And that was it. He passed it on as he was dying. Gordon MacDonald asked this question in a book that I read 20 years ago in my 40s. What kind of an old man do you want to be? Obviously, he as a man was asking it of himself. So what kind of an old person? What kind of an old man, older man? What kind of an older woman do you want to be? You don't decide that at the end. You don't decide that in the last five years of life. You don't decide that when all the sand is Trinkle it down and there's just a little bit left. You should decide that now. What kind of an old person do you want to be? And with that in mind, I would ask you to stand and I would like to give you a blessing from Isaiah 46.4. The sand of your life is passing through. If I live to my dad's age, this is about what's happened so far. And I use this hourglass in my office to remind myself of what's going on. I might not live that long, but if I do, that's what I have left. All I know is God has said this to us in Isaiah 46.4 and to all of us tonight. I say from God, I will still be carrying you when you are old. Your hair will turn gray, and I will still be carrying you. I made you, and I will carry you to safety. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit bridgetown.church slash give for more information. Thanks for listening.